just to explain the format for the evening, um, I shall welcome our two guest speakers in a moment, and they will each have 15 minutes or so to present their case uh, for and against uh, assisted dying, and then they will have a chance to respond to each other, and then I'm going to hand over the chairmanship of the evening to my colleague, the Reverend Dr. John Moby. Uh, John is a local GP as well as being on the staff here at St. Andrews as an ordained Anglican clergyman. And John is going to chair the open forum part of the evening, which will be at least for the last half hour or so of the evening. So if you, you have a chance to um, ask questions and uh, within time constraints, state your opinion. But uh, I hope very much that the open forum will be an opportunity for you to ask questions of our two expert speakers. I, I'm very well aware that this is a subject that is controversial, arouses great passions in people on both sides of the debate. And I ask that uh, our guests, whichever side you've come from this evening, and may I especially welcome those who are not normally part of our family here at St. Andrews. It's lovely to have you here with us this evening. But I ask for both sides that extreme courtesy and politeness is expressed, both in the way in which we welcome our guests and the way in which we question them. This is a... Um, we, we like to think of ourselves, however much we fail, as a Christian a congregation, Christian family. And one of the things I think that upsets me more, almost, or well, lots of things upset me at times, but when I hear of Christians writing in a way that is violent and aggressive and rude, it seems entirely inappropriate, however strongly we might feel. So I hope tonight that we will treat our guests with kindness and courtesy. Any questions that are not so directed will be strongly dealt with by me. Um, let me welcome, first of all, our local MP, Dr. Evan Harris. Evan, if you'd like to come and join us, please welcome Evan Harris to us. To Always before we um, let our guest speakers loose on the congregation, we'd like to find out a little bit about you. We know more about you than most people because you're our local MP. But just tell us a little bit about your background, perhaps, and um, uh, your, your family situation, and yeah, your home, just a little bit about where you've come from. I mean, we know you're an MP, but just tell us a give us a little bit of background. Well, I mean, my particular interest in this subject, uh, it's hard to say where it came from, but before I was elected to Parliament, I was a doctor, a uh, junior hospital doctor, uh, for three years. Uh, it seemed like much longer. Uh, especially to my patients. And, um, and then I worked in public health for uh, three years and then I was elected. But for a long time I served on the Medical Ethics Committee, the BMA, and also the Central Oxford Research Ethics Committee. So I've had a long-standing interest uh, in uh, medical ethics, both the philosophical, uh, the clinical, and the, the legal side. I also serve on the Human Rights Select Committee where I work uh, closely on a number of issues actually not this issue, but many other issues alongside uh, church groups on asylum seekers' rights, for example, and, uh, and so forth. And um, I, I don't know why, but I always felt strongly that this was an issue that whatever one's view was needed to be debated. And one thing I noticed was that of all the things we debate in Parliament, we've never actively in the House of Commons ever debated this subject. And um, uh, until the, I had an adjournment debate uh, a couple of, uh, couple of years ago to give it its first airing. And uh, 
and so I'm always keen to make sure we at least debate these matters. Great. And do you live here in, in Oxford as well as in London? And, I mean, that's that's right, a bit that's of a hot question, I realise, with the experience. Right. <laughs> it, isn't meant, it isn't meant to be a hot question at I, all. <laughs> I, have, I have negative equity here in Botley, okay. uh, as the expression goes, and I uh, have lived here uh, for, oh, I must be uh, 20 years or so uh, in, uh, in Botley since I was at the university here. Uh, and I was pleased to hear about the injunctions on courtesy because, uh, because certainly uh, the receptions I get in meetings like this is always better than the behaviour in the House of Commons. So I don't think you have anything <laughs> to fear about. And, and certainly, uh, uh, certainly in, 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 um, in, uh, in domestic circumstances. So that's my position. Thank you very much, Evan. Peter, let me w welcome you, if you'd like to join us. Do welcome Dr. Peter Saunders. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll send you back to your seat in a minute for, e for Evan's first 15 minutes. But likewise, tell us a little bit about your own. I know you're a Kiwi. Um, you're not wearing your all-black shirt tonight, which I've is... I've got my New Zealand tie on there. Oh, okay, okay, very good. Kiwis we, and silver what, What's a Kiwi, in, an expert in Christian medical ethics, doing in the UK? Well, I, I grew up in New Zealand, trained in medicine, specialised in general surgery, and then we came to the UK back in 1989 via Kenya, where we worked uh, in a mission hospital. My wife's a paediatrician. Mm -hmm. We've got three kids, uh, two at university, one going next year. And uh, for the last 18 years or so, I've been working with the Christian Medical Fellowship, which is an organisation with about 4,500 doctors throughout the UK and Ireland as members and about 1,000 medical students and affiliated to similar bodies around the world. The, the, the other hat I have uh, related to this subject is that I'm one of the directors of Care Not Killing Alliance. And Care Not Killing was set up about four years ago and brings together faith groups, human rights groups, disability rights groups, professional groups, healthcare providers, 50 organisations altogether, almost, right. um, with the aims of, of opposing a change in the law to allow euthanasia or assisted suicide, promoting good care, and then contributing to the debates on these subjects. And, and like Evan, I think these are incredibly important things to be talking about. Good. Well, thank you both very much indeed. What we hope is to... Obviously, there have been two huge cases in the newspaper this week, which many of us will have been reading about and be aware of. One cannot but escape the fact this is a highly topical issue, and I'm very grateful to you both coming to help us to understand both sides uh, of the argument. Peter, if you and I resume our seat, Evan, the platform is yours. Can I first say how, um, can I just say how pleased I am to be able to speak uh, to uh, a, such a large audience and, and, and a local audience, and to say what a pleasure it is to speak in a building like this, which knows how to work a sound system. It's so rare. Uh, no, no, it's very impressive. And so, so whatever words are preached, I, I, there's no excuse for not hearing them, it seems to me, in, uh, in this building and indeed in other churches, I find. Um, I actually am opposed to most forms of euthanasia, and I would urge you to make sure that when you hear the word, you understand, uh, you ask the people who are using it to specify what they mean. Uh, there are three types of euthanasia. Um, voluntary euthanasia, which is where someone asks for help to die, help with their suicide, as it were, uh, which, will up, which is mainly what I'm going to be talking about, um, or uh, ask someone to uh, kill them because they want help being killed, and that's competent people making that request. It's controversial enough. Um, 
non-voluntary euthanasia is when people are killed without being asked, as it were, maybe because they're in a coma or unconscious or not in a position to give a question. It's often done out of uh, compassion, but nevertheless, it is not what I'm advocating, and it's certainly wrong in my view. And then there's uh, involuntary euthanasia, which is where people don't want to die and have been very clear about that and are killed, and that's essentially murder. Uh, well, again, the motivation might make you judge whether that's the same sort of murder as cold-blooded killers do and get mandatory life sentences or some, something less. And I'll come on to that to deal with when I deal with some of these cases. But what I'm advocating is a change in the law to permit assisted suicide, a form of voluntary euthanasia, with safeguards. And what I'm arguing for is that people, if they choose to, who are competent who are terminally ill, who are not being coerced and that that's checked for, and are suffering unbearably, are able to go through a regulated system to provide the safeguards that they're competent, they're not coerced, no one else is profiteering, they are terminally ill, um, to have a dignified death rather than a long, drawn-out, uh, humiliating for them or painful death. doesn't mean that it's an alternative to palliative care. The two would go hand in hand, indeed, in some jurisdictions where um, assisted dying is lawful, palliative care has improved, and one could have, as one of the criteria of a change in the law, uh, the requirement to have had access to good palliative care. But you can't force treatment on people, and if people said, say, I don't want any more palliation because I want to keep my wits about me, I don't want to be doped up and sedated to death, then one has to respect those wishes, and then people will still maybe want uh, a small number in the jurisdictions where this is permitted will, will be allowed uh, to have help dying. One of the motivations for me, because I'm so opposed to unlawful uh, uh, killing, uh, involuntary and non-voluntary euthanasia, is in those jurisdictions, because that's prevalent. I mean, there are hundreds of deaths, surveys show, when doctors are asked, do you help patients along the way? even when you're not asked? Do you help patients when you're asked? Doctors say yes, if they're granted anonymity, uh, because it's unlawful. And hundreds, if not thousands, of those cases occur in this country each year. There is evidence, good evidence, from those jurisdictions where uh, voluntary euthanasia or assisted suicide is, is legal, that those numbers go down because conversations take place and doctors know that if a patient knows that they can ask and they're not asking, that there's no need for them to be paternalistic. But in jurisdictions where it's unlawful, doctors can't even initiate that conversation and find it very difficult to talk to patients and vice versa. Indeed, in jurisdictions like Holland where voluntary euthanasia is lawful, where patients can actually talk to their doctor about these options, I don't, we don't know whether this is why, but, but in Holland, in surveys of trust between patients and doctors, that comes out highest. So it in, encourages communication. The, um, so, there, so there are many reasons why the status quo simply isn't good enough. It's not only because there are all these uh, deaths already taking place that we don't know where whether there's been coercion. We don't know whether there's adequate tests 
for people being competent to make the decision. We don't know whether it applies to people who are terminally and suffering unbearably, and we don't know what's going on. But the second reason is that at the moment, we don't have a situation where no one's killing themselves or no one's getting help to die. There are hundreds of violent suicides and botched suicides, often by people who are in these circumstances, who wouldn't have to half kill themselves or violently kill themselves with the trauma that it gives to other people, whether it's train drivers or emergency workers who pick up the pieces, literally, if they knew that they had a legal way to make sure that they could have a dignified death at the time of their choosing when those circumstances were there. Um, uh, we also know that many people who fear going on to be in more pain and suffering refuse treatment at an earlier stage, often just refusing food and water because they want to die. And strangely, although we have this law that denies the terminally ill who are competent uh, the right to have active help in dying, we don't prevent anyone who isn't terminally ill who is competent, although there's not much checks for it, and there's certainly no checks for coercion, who may not be suffering at all, we don't stop them refusing treatment. In fact, it's unlawful to give people who are not terminally ill but have a life-threatening treatable condition a treatment because we respect the autonomy for them to refuse treatment. And many people have slower deaths from refusing treatment than they obviously would with active deaths where those safeguards and conditions are met. Um, so for me, this is about two things. Well, it's about three things. It's about solving a problem where there are deaths at the moment. We're not in a nirvana where this isn't happening. So to make it better, to reduce the uh, 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 killing of people who don't, in my view, fall into the category where we have a duty to respect their autonomy. It's about respecting people's autonomy. Um, and also, uh, uh, it's about ensuring that we identify what safeguards are needed to protect the vulnerable. I'm not calling for a free-for-all. At the moment, people can go to Dignitas, and what the, the sort of change in the law that I and most people who support a change in the law in this country envisage would have much tighter criteria than Dignitas have, but at the moment, in order to take advantage of that, you have to um, be fit enough to go. And many people say, why should I have to go earlier than I otherwise would, because I can't have recourse to this option uh, in this country. And we know from the cases, almost all the cases, of terminally ill people who are going to Dignitas, that their families are not pressing them to go. If you saw the case of uh, Dr. Ann Turner, a GP who knew her own mind, uh, whose family I've met on many occasions, uh, they were desperate for her not to go. It's not what they wanted, but they were persuaded in the end that it's what she wanted. So the idea that there is a lot of bloodthirsty relatives uh, wanting their terminally ill um, uh, uh, sick relatives to, to go a few months earlier uh, it doesn't stand up. In fact, there's huge pressure, and it's right that there should be uh, pressure from families within that private dynamic for people not to go. Yeah, that's, that's human and understandable. In terms of autonomy, there is, I accept, uh, a difference of opinion uh, between uh, some philosophies and others. I believe that it's my life. And if there's someone who, if there's someone who feels very strongly that it's not for them to 
exercise autonomy over their life and death because they believe it's God-given, then that's fine for them. But there are many people who don't take that view, or in extremists certainly don't take that view, and I think there are some areas where one can respect the sincere views of other people and say, that's your business, you'll make your own personal decision, and you'll actively urge other people to share your view, but that doesn't mean you criminalize it for other people who don't share that view. This exactly the same, in a sense, applies to things like homosexuality. I've never tried to persuade people who have a strong religious view that homosexuality is, is wrong or sinful, that it isn't. It's not my business, really, to go around and it would not be a productive use of my time to do that. But what I do do at every opportunity is say whatever your views, theological views, criminalizing people for a victimless activity, adults in private is wrong. So yes, you may advocate one thing, but don't use the criminal law, which wrecks lives, to impose what is a personal ethic on other people. And I think the same applies here. But interestingly, uh, opinion poll very recently this week showed from, the, from a reputable organization, um, British uh, Social Attitudes Survey showed that 71% of religious people believed that the law should be changed to permit a sister dying. So the vast majority of Christians believe that individuals, whether or not them, should not uh, be forced to die uh, uh, an undignified death when they're terminally ill, uh, competent, and not being uh, coerced, and that there are checks for all those things. Um, and indeed, the same applies to disabled people who recognize that that there will be differences of opinion in the, in, in, uh, among disabled people's organizations, but the vast majority of those people, when explained the situation, do support a change in the law, uh, and it's certainly not all on one side. And it's unusual that I take a position sometimes that has significant majority support. Many of the other campaigns I run for humanity towards asylum seekers, or indeed for, uh, you know, 10 years ago for full decriminalization of homosexuality certainly weren't the commonly held view. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I accept I might be in a minority in, in, in this audience, but part of my job as your MP, for those of you for whom I am the MP, is where I don't share your view, is to be accountable and to explain to you why and demonstrate that I've thought about it. You may think that my thinking, <coughs> excuse me, my thinking is wrong, uh, but I have considered it deeply. Um, the <clears throat> finally, I think this is just an introduction, and I know because Peter and I are bored with debating. We're well, never bored with debating each other. We've done this before. There'll be lots of uh, points to be made in the cut and thrust. <clears throat> I think it's important to stress that the recent cases we've shown show that there is a real problem with the current law. Each of the cases that we're talking about that we've seen in the paper are, di are different. So Kay Inglis, I think that was her name, Mrs. Inglis, whose son Tom was, had a serious brain injury and, uh, but was not, um, <clears throat> was not in a persistent vegetative state, for example, and the prognosis of the doctors was not as bleak as it would be for someone in a persistent vegetative state. It was clearly an offence for her to kill him. In my view, that is a criminal offence. She knew it was a criminal offence. It wasn't a case of a moment of madness. She was already on bail 
for attempted murder for doing something similar. So it's absolutely right that she should be convicted of an offence because we can't have uh, people, as we do at the moment, who are vulnerable at the mercy of people out of a misguided mother's sense of compassion, perhaps, um, being at risk of that sort of thing. Uh, so the only thing that the CPS could charge her with in this country was murder. And there's no first-degree or second-degree murder like there is in, in the US. It's first-degree murder, and our politicians in this race to the top have mandated that anyone, anyone convicted of murder, the judge must have no discretion and there must be a mandatory life sentence. It's not something my party has supported because we think it's wrong for politicians answering the tabloids to interfere with judicial discretion. Uh, and, the, and part of the reason for that is not just the principle of respecting judges' discretion, but because juries, juries will not convict if they think the sentence or, or, or the conviction is going to be unfair. And this lady was nearly acquitted. Indeed, many people felt she should have been acquitted, but it was 10-2. And that's as close as you can get <laughs> while still getting a, 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 a guilty verdict. And she deserved a guilty verdict, but not, and she didn't, nearly didn't get it, but it shouldn't be murder one. So we've, my party's advocated, as has the Law Commission, that there'd be first degree and second degree murder. To, to distinguish between the cold-blooded murderers, the violent serial killers, um, <clears throat> those sorts of people, and people who are doing something that is unlawful killing, that is premeditated, but is born of a motive misplaced of compassion, uh, as it was in this case. I mean, there's no doubt about that in respect to the facts. So that's one area where the law is wrong, but it's not an issue of assisted dying. This, there's something completely different. There's a second sort of case where doctors are entitled to decide that further treatment is burdensome and or futile, it's futile and also burdensome, and withdraw that treatment. And if the next of kin object, then the courts make that decision. And that's because it's not considered in the best interests of patients to receive onerous and burdensome treatment. But he wasn't in that position. The doctors were not of that view. And so it was wrong for uh, Tom Inglis's mother to take that case. The other case this week, um, was the case of the uh, woman who was prosecuted for murder, again, curiously, and the judge couldn't understand why the CPS did this, when agreeing to help, uh, active, be actively helping her sick daughter who'd asked to die. Uh, and she was convicted of assisted suicide, and that's right, it was assisted suicide, and that's currently illegal, but again, the real risk is here that people who do this in an uncontrolled way will not be convicted by juries and there will be a free-for-all. And we need to ensure that assisted suicide distinguishes between people who help people to die who are mentally ill and can actually are suicidal but need <coughs> mental health treatment, uh, who, who want to die but shouldn't, but they need help, and people like Debbie Purdy or Diane Pretty who want to live but know they're going to die and want to have a dignified death at a time of their own choosing and want help to do that. And the, the courts eventually said that the law is too wide. We can't have a law that doesn't distinguish between those things. Well, we do, well they didn't say that. They said Parliament ought to look at this, which is what I've been saying. And in the meantime, the, uh, the Director of Public Prosecutions has to come up with a list of criteria to give some relatives the reassurance that they're not going to be prosecuted for assisted suicide, maximum sentence 14 years, for doing something that 
their loved one wants, their terminal suffering loved one wants, which is assisting them either in this country or going to Switzerland. But we shouldn't, it shouldn't be about seeing what list is checked. Parliament should make these decisions. Which he, you can't vote out that, that, that set of criteria. You can't vote out the Director of Public Prosecutions, but you can, in our quasi-democracy, have an influence on what your members of Parliament do. And Parliament should make the law, and Parliament should decide if it wants to distinguish, as I believe it should, between wrong cases of assisted suicide and what I think are morally justified, autonomy-respecting, uh, bad case-reducing cases of uh, assisted suicide. There are other jurisdictions where this is done. There's no sign whatsoever in Oregon or Holland, and there have been studies of this, that there is a higher rate of assisted suicide among people you might consider to be vulnerable, the poor, the less educated, uh, the particularly elderly. So in those jurisdictions, which may not be perfect, and we can make our own law, it's not having the bad effects that people claim it does. And Peter and I always swap assertions on this, but I've, uh, I've looked at the literature and I'm convinced that, uh, that that is right. And indeed, the Oregonians have always liked what they do, and the Washingtonians uh, have now adopted it as well in Washington State next door. So I think there is movement in other jurisdictions, and it's only fair for the people who are suffering and their relatives that we move in due course. As a very minimum, we must have the debate, and tonight is part of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Evan. That's a great start. Uh, good to meet a politician laboring under the burden of increasing popularity. That's uh, a rare experience for us. In election year, though, that must be a very gratifying for you, I'm sure, to know that people love you more and more each day. But, um, Peter, do please come and have your 15 minutes and um, uh, answer those, those points. Thanks very much. I'll come back to, to uh, the points that Evan's made later, and I'm sure he'll come back to mine as well. But in terms of setting out the stall, I'd say, first of all, that I, that I accept Evan's definitions of voluntary, non-voluntary, and involuntary euthanasia. I, I agree with those definitions. I'd want to make the distinction between assisted suicide, where the doctor or someone else helps someone to end their own life, and voluntary euthanasia, where <coughs> the, the, the doctor or someone else actually ends the person's life for them at their own request if it's voluntary. And it's a distinction, an important distinction in law because in Britain, if you're found guilty of assisted suicide, you can have a sentence up to 14 years, but you can get uh, a very minimal sentence, a conditional discharge, as uh, Kay Gilderdale got, uh, which might mean you don't have to go to the jail at all. Whereas for voluntary euthanasia, it's seen as the same as a murder charge, so it's a life sentence with discretion and sentencing for the, for the judge. This whole issue is hugely topical at the moment uh, because, as Evan has alluded, the Director of Public Prosecutions has put out a set of guidance about when he does and doesn't prosecute for assisted suicide, which is out for consultation. We've just last week had a new bill tabled in the Scottish Parliament by Margot MacDonald, MSP, which is attempting to legalise both assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia 
not just for terminally ill people, but also for people with serious dis disabilities or chronic illnesses as well. And then, of course, there's the Gilderdale and Inglis cases, so it's all very, very topical. There are three main arguments against legalizing assisted suicide or euthanasia, and, and those are the ones that, that I want to present uh, initially here. The first is that uh, it is unnecessary to change the law because uh, when you look after people uh, effectively, requests are extremely rare. 95% uh, of palliative medicine doctors in the UK are opposed to a change in the law. And if you talk to one of them, who in, in their average lifetime of practicing will have about 20,000 patients, they'll tell you that they can count on the fingers of one hand the number who have a persistent ongoing request for their lives to be ended. So if you attend to people's needs, not just their physical needs, but also their spiritual, psychological and social needs as well, requests are very unusual. In my entire practicing lifetime as a surgeon, I only ever had two requests from a patient to end their life, and both of those reversed their request as soon as we treated the symptoms that were prompting that uh, request. We do see uh, high-profile cases in the news, but they represent a very, very small minority of the number of cases. The Dignitas Clinic, so-called in Zurich, we have had 120 cases since 2001. Uh, that's against six million deaths in Britain over the same period. That's about one in every 50,000 British deaths takes place there. So uh, when you see the highly publicized cases of motor neurone disease like Diane Pretty, Craig Hewitt, Reginald Crewe, and so on, you've got to remember that there are 5,000 people in Britain with motor neurone disease and that 1,000 die every year. Daniel James was one of 20,000 people with tetraplegia or paraplegia, the rugby player. Debbie Purdy is one of 70,000 people with multiple sclerosis. Margaret MacDonald, MSP, one of 120,000 with Parkinson's disease. So the vast majority of people dying, uh, even with these dreadful diseases, uh, particularly motor neurone disease, do not want assisted suicide or euthanasia and uh, die in the main comfortably with good palliative care. Motor neurone disease, if they're looked after properly, none of them choke, people will tell you, who look after them. So uh, a lot of the push, I believe, is coming from the so-called majority worried well in this country who understandably are uh, upset by the images that they see of hard cases on TV or may have had uh, people who died very badly in their own families. So my argument would be that rather than legalizing assisted uh, suicide or euthanasia, that our priority should be assisted living, making the best possible care much more widely accessible, and to get rid of the postcode lottery that exists in this country, uh, with 56% dying in hospital when, uh, where palliative care is most poorly resourced, rather than at home where actually most people would want to die. So it's unnecessary, first of all. Secondly, uh, it's dangerous, I believe, to change the law because people who are terminally ill, chronically ill or disabled are vulnerable and lack the knowledge and skills to alleviate their, their own symptoms. And this makes them uh, vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. They're often afraid about the future, anxious about the effect that their illness is going to have on themselves and on loved ones. And they may well be depressed, many terminally ill people are, have a false sense of, of worthlessness, they might be confused, suffering from dementia, and so on. 
And it was for this reason, Evan's quite right, that the House of Commons has not debated this issue, but the House of Lords has looked at it extensively three times uh, since I've been in this country. And at the first House of Lords Select Committee back in 1994, Lord Walton, medically qualified peer who uh, chaired that committee, summed up all the findings by saying, we concluded it would be virtually impossible to ensure that all acts of euthanasia were truly voluntary and that any liberalisation of the law could not be abused. We were also concerned, he said, that vulnerable people, the elderly, lonely, sick or distressed, would feel pressure, whether real or imagined, to request early death. Elder abuse is a, uh, a big phenomenon. It can be physical, emotional, financial. Where there is a will, uh, there is also an anxious relative and an anxious uh, health minister as well, particularly in times of economic recession. <clears throat> we have seen in high circles in Europe the argument that we simply can't afford to, people, to, to keep people alive. We had it from Martin Amos, the novelist last weekend, who talked about advocating euthanasia clinics on every corner where people could be given a medal and a martini before their lethal injection, and that it was a good way of dealing with the silver tsunami of elderly people with dementia uh, who were stinking out our society. Now, that's an extreme view, but um, the, <coughs> the, uh, the former president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, Jacques Attali, said just a little while ago, as soon as he gets beyond 60 to 65 years of age, man lives beyond his capacity pr to produce and he costs society a lot of money euthanasia will be one of the essential instruments of our future society. Uh, imagine a world where assisted suicide and euthanasia is available as a treatment option. You've got a terminal disease, you've got two options. One is palliative care costing a thousand pounds per week, the other is a glass of barbiturate costing a mere five pounds. Do you want to really put that kind of temptation in front of health ministers? Do we really believe that relatives seeing granny living on and on and existing, exhausting the inheritance that health ministers counting their pennies in the middle of a recession will never be tempted to save money by going for the cheaper option? One in eight cases of elder abuse at the moment involve financial abuse by relatives. Where euthanasia has been legalised and accepted, it has led to involuntary euthanasia this has been very well documented in the Netherlands, where as early as 1990, where it was sanctioned in that country, there were over 1,000 patients killed without their consent in a single year. And those figures have continued at that kind of rate. In the Netherlands, also under the agreed Groningen Protocol, there are uh, dozens of disabled children whose lives are ended uh, every year. And uh, increasingly we're seeing now in the Netherlands the use of so-called terminal sedation accounting for 8% of all Dutch deaths. And terminal sedation means something very different in the Netherlands than it does in Britain, where very different doses are used under the Liverpool pathway protocol here. The difference between treating someone's anxiety close to death as compared with giving them such a large dose of sedatives that they're rendered unconscious and then as a prelude to having our food and fluids withdrawn. We've heard a lot about safeguards, and um, Dr. Harris has reiterated his, 
his position that it's a very restricted change in the law that he's looking for, mentally competent adults uh, who are terminally ill where there's no coercion, uh, and it sounds good, but any bill allowing assisted suicide, I would argue, carries within it the seeds of its own extension. And it's simply for this. There's a logical fallacy in the whole argument. The two main arguments used for euthanasia are respect for autonomy and compassion for people suffering. Now, it's very clear that there are many people who want to die who are not terminally ill. Autonomy. And there are many people who are suffering from symptoms that they find very difficult to cope with who are not terminally ill. So the arguments, compassion and autonomy that are being used actually apply logically to people outside the strict criteria. And uh, therein lies uh, the problem, because such inconsistencies would be ripe for challenge under human rights legislation if assisted suicide or euthanasia were ever to be accepted as a therapeutic option. We've already seen in those going to the Dignitas facility how fluid, how elastic these criteria are. We started with people who were terminally ill with cancer, then there were those, uh, uh, or motor neuron disease, then there were those with death some years off, and Turner with PSP, on average a seven to 10 life, uh, year life expectancy, and then the severely disabled or chronically ill, Debbie Purdy, arguably with several decades to live, and Daniel James, the rugby player, who uh, almost certainly had several decades. And uh, for every person who's arguing for a very limited change in the law, there are more on the other side who are arguing for more. Baroness Warnock, who thinks involuntary euthanasia should be available for those with dementia. Philip Nitschke, from the other side of the Tasman Sea, from me, who thinks it should be available for the elderly, bereaved, and troubled teens, and so on. And I think one of the questions I'd like Dr. Harris to address is what he actually means by terminally ill. Because whenever I asked folks from the Dignity and Dying lobby, I get a different answer every time, and it's a very elastic concept. Now, those who are advocating assisted dying bills have been very quick to point out the so-called safeguards, that it's only assisted suicide and not euthanasia, that it's only for adults, that it's only for those uh, with six months to live, only for those with unbearable suffering, only for those who make a persistent and considered request. And they talk about also the option of palliative care, the need for signed consent, assessment of mental competence, waiting periods, documentation, and so on. Uh, I would say don't be fooled by the it's only safeguards, it's only the beginning. But what's failed to be pointed out is that assisted suicide is often unsuccessful, leading for the need to the doctor to step in with a lethal injection. That if we get it passed for adults, there will be challenges under the principle of Gillick competence, which will extend it to younger teenagers. That prognosis and terminal illness is very difficult. It's impossible for most doctors to say how long people will live, and it's altered dramatically by treatment. That the evidence from Oregon and the Netherlands, whatever else it shows, proves that relying on doctors' self-reporting is notoriously unreliable. That requests for assisted suicide could be profoundly influenced by a patient feeling that they're a burden or being depressed or whether or not they've actually experienced as opposed to being told about palliative care. And then there's the whole issue of 
incremental extension. A lot of the, uh, those who are opposing euthanasia don't come from any religious or faith perspective at all. The strongest uh, non-faith lobby is disabled people. And uh, in a conversation recently with Stephen Drake of Not Dead Yet in the US, rather interesting name, Not Dead Yet, their disability rights lobby, uh, he argued the thing you've got to understand about the slippery slope is that it is actually an incremental strategy. Once you accept the principle of assisted suicide or euthanasia as uh, a treatment option, then the door will be widened and widened. So unnecessary, uh, dangerous, and then finally, I would like to, to say unethical. If any of you read or would admit to reading the mail on Sunday this morning, you would have read what I thought was an excellent piece by Anne Atkins, in which uh, she talked about the moving story of one of her children who uh, suffered from Asperger's syndrome and at one point had been suicidal and there'd been an incident where he was about to jump off the roof at school and after rescuing him on the way home, she told him about the chief rabbi at the time, Lord uh, Jakobowicz, who said on Radio 4's Moral Maze, taking life is wrong, he said simply, your own or anyone else's. Uh, if you're a moviegoer, uh, and you've seen Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, you'll know the line, it's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. Uh, this is not just uh, a faith-based objection. The Hippocratic Oath says, I'll give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, even by that person, nor suggest such counsel. And this is an ethic that's been upheld in medicine by all subsequent ethical codes, and most recently, the World Medical Association, in the statement of Marbella, confirmed that assisted suicide, like euthanasia, is unethical and must be condemned by the medical profession. The BMA remains opposed to a change in the law, as do all the medical royal colleges, not just on sanctity of life grounds, but on practical and, and uh, pragmatic grounds for reasons of public safety. And uh, these views are shared by many who don't share uh, a Christian faith. A CNK, Care Not Killing, is, is a very ex interesting exercise in co-belligerence because many of the people that uh, work together disagree on everything except for this one issue, that the law should not be changed, and the re where we all come together is on the public safety issue. But then, obviously, as a Christian, uh, my faith uh, has an impact on my own view, um, I believe that all human life is infinitely precious, that it's made in God's image, that uh, it has value because God took human form and gave it nobility. I believe in absolutes, uh, and like some of the people in CNK, that it is wrong actually intentionally to take a human life and that that's in our statute books for very good reason. I believe in the capacity of human beings for evil, which is why we need laws which might not change people's hearts, but are very effective in restraining the heartless and act as a deterrent. That there is meaning in suffering. That we worship a God who experienced the depths of human suffering and that we need people to help people uh, find it, even in desperate situations. That there's hope even in the most desperate situations through new advances, treatments and attitudes. And ultimately, that death is not the end 
and that the Christian ethic, uh, which involves laying down one's life for the weak or making sacrifices for the weak, bearing one another's burdens, is the kind of society that we would, uh, that I would certainly most like to, to live in. One where human worth is measured by the presence, not by the presence or absence of certain human faculties, but where every human being is worthy of protection. Where, uh, not a society where the non-survival of the weakest becomes some kind of public duty, and I'm sure that Dr. Harris would agree with me uh, on that one. So, uh, three reasons, unnecessary, dangerous, unethical, only four ingredients necessary for a dangerous incremental drifting situation, public opinion in favour, a handful of willing doctors, economic pressure, and a law allowing it. The one thing we don't have in this country is the last of those, and that's why it's so essential that this bullock is kept in place. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you both very much. I'm going to um, ask them to respond um, quite briefly to any particular points that you want to, to, to pick up, and then we're going to throw it open for you uh, to uh, ask any questions you wish. Just, I'd just like to throw one at you, first of all, Peter, if I may. Just well, This point that Evan made about... Um, uh, it's so fake for Christians for that, but why should Christians impose their view on the rest of society? Surely if people take a different view... That's up to them. How would you answer that point? Well, I'd agree that we live increasingly in a multi-faith, multi-ethnic society where people approach these problems from a whole host of different faith and worldview perspectives. And I'm coming at it from a Christian perspective and Evan from, from a secular perspective. So we make different uh, assumptions. But I think also that in a democratic society, each of us has a responsibility to ensure that as much as possible we have laws on the statute books which are just and fair. And my concern as a citizen is to ensure that there are laws which are there primarily not to give liberties to the determined or the strong, but actually to protect the vulnerable and the weak. And I think the current law gives us a good balance. The law, if you like, has on the one hand a stern face to deter uh, abuse. And on the other hand, it has a kind heart which gives judges discretion to be able to meet the particular uh, crime, if you like, with an appropriate sentence. Okay. Uh, and I, I think that's, that, uh, that's a good balance. So, you know, we've got responsibilities as citizens to protect okay, Thank you. Evan, your chance to come back. Well, I was delighted that Peter accepted the distinction and the need to distinguish uh, between voluntary euthanasia and other forms of euthanasia. I regret that three times, I ever, every point after he accepted that point, he just used the term euthanasia to describe what I was, uh, what I was proposing, because that's offensive to me, since I've campaigned actively against the taking of life, which is not what is re requested by people who are terminally ill uh, and, and suffering unbearably. Uh, I would agree with him, however, on his first point, that it is rare. We're talking about small numbers. That doesn't, to me, mean we shouldn't do it. 
that should be reassuring, in fact. And indeed, if one looks at what happens in Oregon and indeed in the Netherlands, there are very small numbers involved. The, the, the point is not, the point is partly to help those people who are in extremists, and they're a very small number, because palliative care is effective and has been shown to work very well alongside these changes in the law, but also to give reassurance to people that they will not be facing this because they have that as an option at the end and it's just in their back pocket and is a source of enormous reassurance. I mean, Peter again said that he thought it was dangerous because people would become afraid. I've had far more letters myself as an MP and experience as a doctor of people afraid of painful slow deaths than, than afraid that the law might be changed to enable them uh, to have access to that if they need to be uh, or rather people afraid that they would be forced down that path. The sort of safeguards that we're talking about involve lawyers and second opinions and repeated requests and checks for coercion and don't involve anything. And I must say, I think it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument of the desperate politician. And I have plenty to say that Peter raised. I have plenty to say about our health ministers but, and I'm at war with most of them over the last 10 years, but I have <laughs> never accused them of seeking to kill off people who are a drain on uh, health service resources. The, you know, the first target actually would be the management consultants and the accountants, in my view, and, <laughs> and I'm not claiming neither are they. So I think that's, a, I think that's, I think that's you know, and I have very little sympathy with health ministers, but I think that's a, an undignified argument to use. There's not a shred of evidence in those countries where this is now legal, that there's been any sort of pressure in terms of finances, and indeed resources in some of these areas have uh, gone up. Um, just a couple of other points. Um, in talking about this, he also talked about those people who were confused or suffering from dementia. They would not qualify under the change in the law that I want, but they are at risk at the moment. The point is that there's nothing in the argument that says, what are we going to do about two groups of people? The people who uh, are, suffer from involuntary euthanasia, where in Holland the research shows that it's gone down from 1,000 a year, which is 1,000 too many, uh, to in 2005, 550 a year on these surveys of these involuntary uh, killings, which are wrong and illegal. That's 550 too many. But that, you know, I can, give you, I can give you references to the Journal of Medical Ethics or the British Medical Journal. I, I admit I can't compete with a polemicist in the mail on Sunday, and I apologize for that for those who feel that real evidence only comes from, from columnists in the mail on Sunday. And I, I think that, you know, our Home Secretary tends to think that that's the case in almost all areas. But I would urge you, particularly those in Oxford, to, and I think you do, raise your level, you recognise peer review, for example, as something worthwhile. Um, uh, finally, in this initial rebuttal, because there's so much, <laughs> the slippery slope argument. I mean, there's a, you could use that for any change in the law, okay? The decriminalisation of homosexuality could be said, oh, right, that's a slippery slope to all sorts of things, but it isn't. The reason it isn't a slippery slope is that firstly, this is a slope upwards, because I think it's a civilizing measure, as many of the social changes have been, rather than those people who are socially conservative see it as a downward. I think we should advocate many of these changes as an upward move. But secondly, it's a, extremely difficult to get changes in the law, to get even debates in this country. And the idea that you can easily go from this position 
to this position, which is the one I want, and then somehow easily go to another position with all the other things that, that, that Peter said might come, is ridiculous. It's hard enough to get any change in the law in this way, and the slippery slope argument simply doesn't apply. Um, uh, I could uh, go on and on. I'm going uh, to rebuttal, stop, I'm gonna stop I there. No, you've been exercising great self-discipline. Peter, you have a chance for a few minutes <laughs> just to respond to anything, anything in particular. Well, I've read exactly the same scientific papers and the same scientific journals that, um, that Evan has, and I've come to very different conclusions. And I think the Dutch situation is most concerning. What, it all started in 1985 when someone gave a lethal injection to a relative who died. They were given a one-week suspended sentence. That's the first thing. You don't prosecute for cases. What happened next was that there were a set of safeguards produced uh, or guidelines whereby if doctors followed them, they would not be prosecuted. And there's been virtually no one prosecuted in the Netherlands for assisted suicide or euthanasia. We were already in a sense at the bottom of the slippery slope by 1991, when in the Remelink report published in the New England Journal of Medicine, it was reported that that year there were 2,300 cases of voluntary euthanasia 1,000 of involuntary euthanasia, and Evan's right that the figures for involuntary euthanasia have stayed about the same since at about 1,000 and dipped slightly recently. However, we've got to put that against the case that only half of cases are reported. And what Evan didn't say is that in the most recent statistics from the Netherlands, there's been a huge increase in so-called cases of terminal sedation. What's happening in the Netherlands is that people are just using a different route and then therefore they're recording them in a different way. 8% of all deaths now in the Netherlands are due to terminal sedation, which involves, as I said, huge doses of sedatives and then the withdrawal of food and fluids. Oregon's been touted and often is as, as the case, but if we, let's look at Oregon. The law's been enforced for about 13, 14 years now. Uh, the number of cases per year, it's a state with a very small population, has quadrupled. It's gone up from 12 deaths to 48. One in six cases involve people who are clinically depressed, uh, reported in the British Medical Journal, but in actual fact only one in 20 ever get to see a psychiatrist in some years, none uh, at all. One in three cases, uh, at least in some years, the person was asking for assisted suicide or euthanasia because they felt themselves to be a burden. There's evidence of doctor shopping. Most of the cases take place within the so-called clinics of compassion and choices, the voluntary euthanasia organisation. And, and there have been some very distressing individual cases such as that of Barbara Wagner, who was diagnosed with, with cancer, needed expensive treatment, but received a letter from the Oregon Health Department to say that they were not prepared to fund her cancer treatment, but they could certainly fund her assisted suicide, which she didn't actually want at all. When we look at the figures in the Netherlands and in Oregon, and we put them against the UK figures, and the House of Lords looked at this extensively back in 2005 when they did their reporting, one in every 38 deaths at that time in the Netherlands were uh, due to physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia of various kinds. That would transform to about 18,000 deaths per year in Britain, which is a very big number along the, 
inside the 120 in 10 years going to Dignitas. In Oregon, the figures are one in 700 deaths. So with uh, Margot McDonald's bill in Scotland, we'd be looking on the basis of Dutch figures, and it's a Dutch bill she's proposing, not 50 deaths, as she claims, but actually closer to 1,500 when we apply that figure of 1 in 38 against the Scottish okay, population. I'm going, to, I'm going to stop you there. Evan, before we throw it over, because there are going to be lots of questions, I'm going to have to ask all of you to try, both of you to try and answer the questions quickly. What was not true? Well, where do I start? The Barbara Wagner case in Oregon, I mean, I do feel quite strongly about this because I went, I had to, had to look into this in order, there was a bit of a panic about this, and I remember doing some late-night radio, and I just couldn't, it's just not the case. I mean, yes, health plans in Oregon don't pay for everything. That's why I love our NHS. Uh, you're not at the victim of uh, why I support Obama's plan for extending medical care. So, yes, the palliative treatment that she wanted was not available in her health plan. There is a law in Oregon that says that if you otherwise qualify, you're entitled to an assisted death, and you don't have to, you're not means-tested for that, you don't have to pay for that. And if you put those two together, you can distort it to make it sound as if uh, her health plan said, you can't pay for this, but we will pay for that. No, the state ensures that, that the law is available to everyone regardless of means, and there will be health plans where effective treatments or non-effective treatments are not funded. But to put the two together and say this is the state actively pushing people towards uh, assisted suicide is wrong. There are only, whatever it is, uh, 48 cases a year. The fact that it's gone up suggests that when people know that there's a law that they can use, there is a recourse, they'll use it, but the numbers are very small. And everything depends on what the criteria are for the numbers. And if there are 1,500 people who need this, who qualify, and Parliament thinks they should be able to qualify, then, then, then that's, that's right and proper. I'm going to throw it open. John Moby's going to come and take the chair, so I'm going to run around with the microphone. And um, John is, a, as I said, a GP. He may be able to um, interpret the questions if they're nuanced with medical language uh, better than me. So. Um, uh, John, you're in, you have the floor, and you have our guests. Thank you. I was suggesting I might, might be more useful interpreting the answers than the questions. <laughs> Thank you uh, for warming up this chair. Very I'm going to work my way around. I, I, uh, lots of people will want to ask questions. So, Thank you very much. I'm Tom Bennion, and I wonder whether uh, Dr. Harris might answer this. Uh, my son uh, was here today, aged 28 years old. 28 and a half years old, my wife, who was 36 at the time, went to the doctor who offered her an abortion uh, because she was slightly over the age uh, limit uh, that he felt was wise. So in other words, all the prohibitions and safeguards surrounding abortion in about 12 years have been swept entirely away. What makes you think that safeguards that you held so dear would not suffer a similar fate? I mean, I can't comment, obviously, on the confidential consultation 28 years ago between a unnamed doctor and uh, your, your wife. And clearly, if an inappropriate suggestion was made by a doctor, then there's complaints that can be made about that. Um, I mean, the Abortion Act exists to uh, enable uh, women who don't want to be forced to 
carry their pregnancy and give birth against their will uh, to be able not to do that within certain circumstances, and that is a, a personal decision. Um, uh, actually, the point I would make about the slippery slope is that it's been almost impossible to amend, to further amend, the Abortion Act to change its terms. There was one change in 1990 and nothing since because on all these issues it's very rare that one gets a chance to legislate because politicians are, some politicians are scared of, uh, particularly governments, are scared of having the debate because they find it awkward. But in fact, it's these sort of debates that we need to have in Parliament. So um, I don't, again, I, I would say that um, the, the point about the slippery slope, which is what your question was, I think, is, is, was wrongly put in the, in the second point, the second um, input from Peter Saunders because he said that in Holland, first there was this deal that you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be prosecuted or if you were prosecuted you have very low sentences and then it changed to that you wouldn't be prosecuted if you met certain criteria and now they have a law. Well, I think it's far better to have a law than to have a nod and a wink, hung juries, convictions but no sentences, ruined lives either way. I want the clarity of the law, because I believe in the rule of law, not the rule of a nod and a wink to healthcare professionals who don't always, don't always do the right thing. That's why I've never argued that, that because doctors agree something, it must be right, or because doctors don't agree something, it must be wrong. I think that doctors are uh, they're not elected, so they're not accountable, and uh, they are um, relatively conservative in some of these matters. The fact that the nurses have changed their position on this issue is not something I prayed in aid. So I think we should take out the professional groups, the vested interests, and look at this on the basis of principles, ethics, and practicalities. I accept that that's a reasonable thing to do. Thank you. But, um, Peter. We're not here to debate abortion, um, but I think it's an interesting case study of what I'd call incremental extension as opposed to the slippery slope. And I think what we, whatever you think about abortion, I happen to be opposed to it. A lot of people in Care Not Killing aren't, they're pro-choice. But uh, whatever you think about it, there's no doubt that when the bill went through, and if you look at the transcripts of those debates uh, in which David Steele was the proponent, people certainly didn't anticipate anything like the numbers we've got today. Uh, they were thinking of it, and remember this followed on from the thalidomide disaster was in a few very difficult hard cases. The, the result uh, following that decision in 1967, 33 years later, well, 43 years later, is that we now have 200,000 a year, almost seven million abortions altogether, and many of them done on seemingly trivial grounds, and now a growing problem where women are saying that they're choosing it simply because they've been given no choice or because they're being uh, subtly coerced into it by boyfriends or family or, or, or others. So I think that's a real problem. And whatever you think about morality abortion, it does demonstrate incremental extension. And it also demonstrates the other thing that happens with it, and that's the change in the public conscience. Now, there's this, the, the whole analogy, Malcolm Muggeridge used this example, that if you take a frog and put it in hot water, it will jump out. But if you put it in cold water and gradually bring that water to the boil, the frog will make no attempt to escape. And human beings are not unlike frogs in this regard, that if the moral temperature of a country changes gradually enough, 
people don't recognize it. And several decades later, they'll accept as normal things that they would have been horrified by. Over the last few months, uh, the most high-profile cases of assisted suicide have not been for people suffering from terminal illness. We've had Daniel James mentioned tonight, the um, uh, paralyzed rugby player who wanted to die because he said he couldn't stand the prison his life had become. Um, so Edward Dowes, the conductor, uh, went to Dignitas to die alongside his terminally ill wife, again, because he couldn't face life without her. And last week, Kate uh, Gildedale, apparent public approval when she was acquitted of killing her daughter, who had been suffering from ME. So despite what campaigners say about safeguards, the apparently vital requirement that someone's condition be terminal has immediately been shown to be irrelevant, uh, and apparently to um, Dr. Um, Harris as well, since he failed to pick up on this. And of course, it's a short step from uh, there to Baroness Warnock's position that society ought to terminate the lives of those who no longer contribute to the general good and are a drain on resources. And similarly, the National Secular Society, of which Evan Harris is an honorary associate, is now actively and openly campaigning for legislation for the legalization of euthanasia. So uh, my question is very specifically to Evan Harris of what exactly is going on here? And why are you so keen to promote the sanctioning, the state-sanctioned taking of life? Um, thank you for that question. We've debated many times these <laughs> issues, I know. Um, the state-sanctioned taking of life, I mean, I'm not, actually. I want more regulation, but there's, that there is state-sanctioned taking of life in many cases already. Uh, um, it depends whether you believe Mr. Blair or not. Uh, but that was effectively st uh, state-sanctioned, the deaths in Iraq. Um, and also, of course, when, the, when judges decide that treatment can be withdrawn from people, like in the Bland case, uh, where the BMA definitely disagree with Peter Saunders, I know, uh, then that is state-sanctioned. Um, I think you misunderstood what I said, because I actually... I, and for, as far as I know, the National Secular Society are all campaigning for the same thing, which is the criteria to include terminal illness, not the likes of Dan James or Kate Kilderdale. And I said, and I'm sorry you didn't hear me, that I think she committed an offence, and it, the, the Kate, Kate Gilderdale, and would still be an offence under my provision. So I'm not arguing that we legalise that. The problem is at the moment that too much falls into that category of assisted suicide where juries definitely would not convict. They, they refused to convict her of murder and the judges thought that was a crazy thing to do. It is not, it's absolute, you say it's a short step from, from, uh, from legalising assisted suicide with the safeguards I've identified to a position where those people with dementia are, are killed. It's not a short step at all. I, I'm just amazed that you would think that Parliament would ever support such a thing. In fact, the evidence is that where you regulate what is what we think is what we would think was acceptable um, yields to request to die, you have actually every right then to clamp down on those cases which fall outside that. Evan, um, could, you, could you clarify which cases you would want this law to be 
this option to be available. Sure. You said about terminal T illness. To start terminal with, illness, uh, suffering that. unbearably. Could, could you define uh, what sorry, you mean I, by... Did, I, 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 they sort of alternatives. Sorry, I'll deal with one illness. at a time, if I may. If that's all right, Peter. I'll have your say in a minute. Uh, can I just answer your question? Sure, yeah. Terminal illness, suffering unbearably, medically competent, checked, and uh, test for coercion. This is all what four is of those. All four of those, plus more, All actually. together. Yes, plus all, all to, they're all mm -hmm. ands, plus more, and indeed, Peter, there was 20 altogether in the last bill, and I don't want to take your time. I was given the challenge to uh, define terminal illness. I mean, in many of these cases, what we require is uh, a diagnosis, and uh, terminal illness is one that's inevitably going to lead uh, to death. Uh, life is a terminal illness, so one has to be a bit more specific than that in a sense. I'm sorry, to, it depends if you see the donut or the hole, I suppose, your outlook on this. And uh, I don't think that would be a problem by asking and getting an independent second opinion in case there were some zealot doctors out there who would define everyone as, uh, as only having, for example, less than six months to live or less than three months to live. And these are difficult things to do. You could have an independent assessment of whether that is the case. That would, I think, give reassurance that we weren't extending this to people who were going to live decades. And it's wrong, I think, for Peter to have said that Debbie Purdy's got decades ahead of her. Her point is, is that she wants to live. She just is terrified of dying an undignified death. And at the time, when the time comes that she's close to death, as Diane Pretty was, who died against her will in a way that she didn't want, this was the case before Debbie Purdy's that wasn't successful, she wants to be able to have that choice. But she lives, I can tell you, she lives her life to the full and, and, and Radio 5 would be an emptier place without her pitching her arguments against so, those who so disagree with her. Sorry to interrupt, so Debbie Purdy has multiple sclerosis. Yes. Is multiple sclerosis a terminal illness in your criteria? Uh, no, not in its early stages. It wouldn't qualify. Because so it, it would be at a later stage. It would be at a later stage. And you see, in some of these chronic conditions, it's very clear when the end is coming in many cases. Sometimes it isn't. People die suddenly, and you know, many people would rather die suddenly or in their sleep. But when people get to a certain point, death is very likely in, in many cases. Okay. So we're not talking about all the people with multiple sclerosis, and we're not talking about any of the people with, with paralysis like Daniel James. Okay, thank you. Just very briefly on that terminal illness question. Well, the thing that worries me most about this is how elastic this term terminal, terminal illness is. And it seems to mean different things to different people. In Lord Joffrey's bill in 2006, he talked about six months, but he wasn't clear whether people who would have died without treatment within six months like insulin-dependent diabetics or people with treatable cancer, fell within that. I've debated Debbie Purdy on this. She thinks the law should allow for people like Daniel James, not terminally or by any stretch. I've debated Edward Turner, the daughter of Ann Turner, uh, again, the director of Dignity and Dying. He's horrified by the Daniel James case, but thinks the law should accommodate people like his mother, who had probably a, a seven to 10-year life expectancy with PSP. I've asked uh, Sarah Wooten, the chief executive of Dignity and Dying, to define terminally ill. She refuses. It seems the test case to bring about the change in the law and force the DPP to put its guidance was Debbie Purdy, a woman with a chronic progressive illness, multiple sclerosis, in her 40s with probably decades to live. And, uh, and Dr. Harris was amongst others who was seen on national television toasting that decision with champagne, which 
would, would tend to imply to me that he would include her within that definition of... Uh, so, so I just think there's a little when bit of was, when lack of clarity and diso intellectual dishonesty in this whole okay. area. Can, I, can we move to another question? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to ask for a, a, a question, from, question from the Netherlands. Seems appropriate, as the country's been mentioned several times. So, uh, and, then, uh, we and, have, then, and then back to the front? Yeah, OK, we've we got a, a forest of questions, but back I back. think okay. the Netherlands deserves a say. OK, Netherlands. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that is bothering me, and, and, and seriously bothering me, is how we deal with uh, autonomy on the one hand and protection of the vulnerable on the other. Um, it seems to me that if we give freedom to, to people to choose assisted suicide, then at that moment, living on when you're terminally ill also becomes a choice. And uh, knowing, for example, my mother, who is, who is Dutch, thinking about her, how she would be at 80, one of her main worries in life would probably be that she would be a burden to her children. And I'm, I'm wondering how we could avoid her having to make the choice whether she wants to go or not. And I don't think that she should make the choice. So I'm, I'm, I'm really wondering how we can give people autonomy, freedom, without also forcing people to, to need to choose whether they want to live on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, does either speaker want to respond to that? I'll start. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very good question, and this cuts right to the heart of it. Is, auto is personal autonomy absolute? And I certainly believe that autonomy is important. We live in a free and democratic society where people should be free to exercise that autonomy, but there are limits to it, and we're not entitled to exercise freedoms that limit, impinge upon, or threaten the reasonable freedoms of others. That's the whole reason that we have laws. Every single law limits personal autonomy, and we all accept in other situations that, uh, you know, for example, when we queue up in an airport and take hours frustrated going, all being x-rayed, it's because our, we accept limits on our freedom in order to protect the vulnerable, and the same principle operates here. And I think the thing about the law is that it protects not only victims, but also assisters, as potential assisters. Because there's a victim who feels that their life is a burden and that they have that the, the, the right to die, if you like, so easily becomes the duty to die. And often it's an internalized sense of duty, seeing the money being spent on the inheritance and the care burden you're created. The law protects you against that. But the law also protects the potential assister. In other words, the relative who is having pressure put upon them by a strongly determined individual who wants to live, live their life and they feel that if they don't help them, they're, in a sense, uh, betraying or undermining that relationship. And there's great strength and power, I think, in being able to say, Mum, much as I would like to help you, I'm sorry I can't because the law prevents it. So the law protects pressure uh, on people both ways. Evan, how do you it propose doesn't protect. causing that protection? It that doesn't protection? protect at the moment. We know that. We know from these cases that the fact that there is a law is not preventing people 
from, uh, from going to dignitas or seeking help from their relatives and relatives out of sympathy or compassion doing so. I mean, the term dishonesty was used by Peter a while ago, bizarrely, in respect of Debbie Purdy, someone I know even better than Peter knows her, and I know that she doesn't want this law to give her the right to die now. What she's saying is that as her condition gets worse, and I've seen her get worse uh, since I've known her, she wants, at the point at which she is in the terminal phase, the right to help uh, to, to have a dignified death. And I don't think it's for us to say that she shouldn't have that. And this issue of autonomy, which this question was about, is, is, is interesting, it's fascinating and critical. Firstly, Peter's slightly wrong, because the rule is that we should, the, the default should be that people should have their rights and freedoms and their autonomy respected insofar as it doesn't impede the rights and freedoms of others. That's why we have these laws. So there's a balance. Sometimes you can't do things because it impedes the rights and freedoms of others, and there's a weighing situation. Uh, giving Debbie Purdy the right to, 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 um, to have a dignified death at a time of her choosing later on doesn't actually impinge on the rights and freedoms of others. Yes, there are vulnerable people, and that's why legislators, not her, legislators have to ensure that the vulnerable are protected. But they're not protected at the moment because this point has not been made, and I've raised it already, I've never heard an answer to this from the other side, and this is my chance to ask Peter to answer a question. We respect autonomy, autonomy absolutely, absolutely, for competent patients refusing treatment. So you can have a, an otherwise healthy 30-year-old who needs a life-saving operation but is not terminally ill and refuses it because they just can't bear the thought of surgery, okay? So even a bad reason like that, they're not incompetent to make that decision. That decision is and has to be respected in medicine. And actually, there are people who refuse treatment who are older whose decision is absolutely respected when there may be some relatives saying, oh, you don't want this, you know, looking at the will. We don't, I believe we should look again at that situation and there needs to be far more checks for coercion in the case of refusal of treatment of elderly vulnerable people, but there are none at the moment and there should be. So we have this bizarre situation where hundreds of thousands of people die from, because treatment is refused by them, in many cases appropriately, because they don't want an onerous treatment if they're, if they're dying anyway. But among those cases, there are many more cases of people who should actually have the treatment, and if they had a fair exchange uh, and the pressure was taken off, uh, they would. So yes, I want to see checks for coercion on both sides of the active and passive, the refusal and the active help question. And if we did that, we'd have far fewer essentially non-voluntary deaths we would have. We would be maximizing autonomy in the best way. And Elora Finlay and Peter Saunders have never argued how, what their view is about when healthy people can kill themselves by refusing treatment, what we do there. Why are they not proposing intervention? And the reason they don't propose intervention is in those circumstances, they recognize that autonomy has to be respected. Um, rather than giving Peter a chance, just one of the, that does broaden the debate a bit, and we do only have a few minutes left, so I think we should get through some more questions. Um, Sorry. Sorry very, very quickly, because um, Dr. Harris has pretty well answered the question. I was amazed at the first question that Dr. Saunders couldn't answer about autonomy. I have a right, surely, 
as Dr. Harris has said, to do what I want. If I write a living will, when I'm totally compass, can that, and that surely gives me the right to do what I want at the end of my life. The other point that the Netherlands gentleman said about his mother is that when I get to 90 and obviously failing, obviously I'm going to realize that I'm a burden on my children. It's not going to make a difference, the fact that I'm going to be given palliative care. It, it goes without saying, I know I shall be a burden to the state or my children. Therefore, I would like to die with dignity before I get undignified. Thank you. Madam, I don't I, think there was a question there. Could I just ask for, I just ask for clarification? Madam, would you like um, your advance directive or your, your future will to include non-terminal conditions, so dementia and... Yes. I'd be quite happy. I have, stability, yeah. Sorry. Yes, I have talked it over with my doctor. I've talked it over with my children. My children don't like the idea, but my doctor, yes, I do not wish to be undignified. Thank you very much. Thank you. Clarify that advanced directives only direct what treatments you won't have if you're later incompetent. They cannot direct assisted dying at the moment, and nor should they. I'm not in favour of relying on advanced directives to do that. We're talking about the group of people who at the time are able to make that choice. So that's one thing that Peter and I don't have to argue about at least. Well, can I ask thing. both, both uh, Dr. Harris and, and the, the lady who just raised the last question, if the law were to change and it were to allow euthanasia, do you believe that if you signed an advanced directive that if you became mentally incompetent, you'd want a lethal injection, that that should be carried out because that would be that would be non-voluntary euthanasia which would be extending beyond what um, what Dr. Harris is arguing for uh, and, and th th this, this is my point that once you establish euthanasia as a treatment option in any case you'll get people asking what about the person who signs an advanced directive what about the the 16 year old who's mature enough to make his own decisions uh, and so on and so forth. I think, I think we have to, I think we've dealt with, I think we've dealt with that, but I'm really, we've got about five minutes, so I'm really keen okay. to deal, to let people be very patient. Thank you. Um, I don't know what situation I shall be in quite. I've been, um, I have had to live with a pain condition which is untreatable for over 30 years already. And I just don't, don't know, how, I could cope with it now, but I just don't know how I shall be when I get older. And I wonder if I shall have the right to die or the choice. Because I've been living with it for so long, how, long, how much longer will I have to live with it? The, the question is whether, and, it's very, and I'm not intending to talk about your individual circumstance, even though you've offered to, because I think it, it would be inappropriate in this setting, but, but the, the question is whether the option is there to allow assistance, okay? And under the criteria that I and the campaign are calling for, there would have to be a diagnosis of terminal illness, as well as pain. It wouldn't be... Uh, pain in itself and indeed there are huge advances in, in pain management uh, particularly for people um, uh, who are, are in real problems that are now inpatient facilities so I think that but what we're talking about in the case of people who are often seeking assistance is where they are totally reliant they find it just undignified the situation they're in where they need help with all their bodily treatments and there's this my final point would be this question about a burden it's often said, well, someone says that they don't want to be a burden, that would that be sufficient? 
I mean, you can't stop people who are terminally ill, suffering unbearably, uh, who are competent and are not being coerced, from thinking that they don't want to be a burden on people around them. It's a natural thing. If people think that, it shouldn't disqualify them. Part of the job of a civilized society, which is why I support so much investment in a welfare state, is to reduce the tendency for people to think that, because I think that older people, my parents, who did so much for me when I was helpless, would not be a burden. It would be, in fact, a welcome duty for me in those circumstances for me to nurse them. And so we need to have those conversations. And I think it's appropriate for me to make that point because it is a difficult one. Can say anything briefly on that? Burden, uh, pain conditions, intolerable suffering. I think, I think a lot of people feel like this. And I think a lot of people are anxious about what's going to happen in the future to them or to their loved ones. And I think that, that anxiety is always fueled if you have a condition which you know is going to progress or if you've seen a loved one die badly. Uh, but, but I think the answer is not euthanasia or assisted suicide. The answer is to make the very best care much more widely accessible, to get rid of the postcode lottery and make sure that everyone has it. My, my father died just last year uh, of, of dementia. Very, very difficult illness. My grandfather died from, a spinal, from spinal secondaries from a cancer. Some great pain that was very difficult to control. Uh, some of the most distressing ways of dying. And in both those circumstances, I saw, uh, and this was in, in New Zealand, uh, that the very, very best care made available and, and both of those loved ones ended up having what I would call very good deaths with the best possible care. And when I talk to uh, specialists in the area of palliative medicine who spend their whole lives looking after people right at the end of life, they tell me, uh, many of them say, I haven't yet met a patient who I've not been able, if not to alleviate the pain, certainly with the best treatment that's available to substantially lessen it and uh, get a better death. So we need better care, not killing. Do we have time for just one more? Thank you. Um, as a palliative care physician, Peter has actually said quite a bit of what I was going to say anyway, but I guess one of the key things I want to point out is we can't solve everything. Some people sort of quote palliative care as the panacea for all suffering. It isn't, and a lot of the people that I meet who are suffering, it's much more the existential, it's the lack of control of their lives, it's those situations that are so difficult, and for some people are so difficult that they find, I don't want to carry on with this. Having said that, as Peter said, we do attempt to lessen that suffering, both the physical suffering and the psychological and the spiritual, and one thing I wanted to pick up on, Evan was saying earlier that um, doctors didn't get the opportunity to talk to people about the questions about ending their life because the law is as it is. In my experience, I frequently do have those conversations. People raise it, sometimes in a vague sort of, I know it's out there, it's in the papers, it's around, what do you think? Sometimes it is a persistent request saying, if this was legal, this was, would be what I want. 
And again, that's quite often because of the lack of control, but also, and very significantly, it's because of a fear of the future. It's a fear of what might be coming. And actually, I think it's our duty to not use the word dignity as a political banner, but to actually say, for each individual patient, what, what are you worried about? What is the lack of dignity that you're fearing? And actually do our best as a nation, as professionals in whatever role, to actually try and address those individual issues rather than make something legal. Thank you. Can um, I just invite sort of closing comments from, from both our speakers just well, in response well, to that? Well, my response to that would be that I agree with, I think, everything you said, except I would go further and say, after all that's done, and I think there should, and you should be given the resources to do that, there should be that option. And what we know is that many patients don't raise it because they think they'll get the doctor into trouble. You, don't, you never know what's not being raised. So what you can do is compare the amount of trust and openness that patients feel they have with their doctor across countries, comparing jurisdictions where assisted suicide is legal or not, and surveys have shown, and again, we can't say it's necessarily this is the cause, that in Holland there is more doctor-patient trust because there can be open conversations about this and patients feel they're getting the, the full picture. But palliative care physicians are specialised people who do a fantastic job and I think absolutely what you said about the control and dignity, I would agree with. I'm sorry that, that, that in a sense, that that word has been used to discuss this, but nevertheless, it's that we are where we are, but, and it's a very good way of summing up the subjective feelings that even though my pain may be controlled, I'm undignified. Uh, my final comments would be that I'm grateful for the opportunity to have this uh, debate. It certainly has been more civilised than in the other places that I sometimes do the debating. Um, uh, the heckling has been, uh, and that's, you know, that's my home dinner table mainly, the heckling's been far uh, uh, non-existent here. And, and, and you know, even though Peter and I don't agree on this, as we didn't agree on hybrid embryo research for, to help find treatments and a number of other uh, things, uh, I, I do think it's important, which is why I always accept the invitation to come to places like this. Well, I got an email from a, from a reverend friend of mine who lives in Yarnton who said, sorry, couldn't come to back me up here, but I hope I won't be Daniel-like, which I understand is a, is a, is a biblical reference. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, if, if Daniel's had the experience that I had the experience I've had tonight, I, I think we wouldn't have had that book of the Bible, so it's been fine. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, any closing comments, Peter? <laughs> A lion and a den full of Daniels. <laughs> the, uh, well, I just emphasise again the importance of, of good care. And uh, as, as has been said, often suffering is not necessarily physical. It is often existential or spiritual. It's about uh, the bigger questions of meaning and, and death and, and so on, which, which all need to be addressed. And I think we have to work very hard to make the very best care of the whole person available. Uh, I think we're left with the key question at the end of this night, is what do you do for the very small number of people who despite the best care still want to have their lives actively ended through assisted suicide yes. euthanasia? Yes. Do you change the law? That's the key question. Yes. And my... That's precisely the question. That's the He's key question. He's about to answer it. Peter. And my answer would be, 
that if you change the law, then you create a situation where the collateral damage to others, the risk of that, is so great. And the reason we, we have the law the way it, that, that... It will that, continue the debate. Let, let me just say that the Later. current law, I believe, is clear and right, and the blanket prohibition on assisted suicide and euthanasia is there to protect the vulnerable. I'm going to close the meeting with thanks to both our speakers very much indeed for coming. I think it's been excellent. They've both been very clear. Thank you.